Welcome back to Cancer Perspective. Thank you for joining us again. For those of you who have been lucky enough to listen to previous podcasts that include Gina, she needs no introduction except to say that she's the world's greatest oncology dietitian. Being the world's greatest dietitian is one thing, but we also need to know that you've been awarded the Emerging Dietetic Leader of the Year by the Illinois Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for having me again. Always good to be back with you and the dogs. I think this podcast is extremely important now that we are in Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and there's a lot of information that I think is going to be beneficial for so many people out there. So I'm excited to dive in with you today. We are so grateful to have you. Since it is October, and October includes Breast Cancer Awareness Month, we have decided to expand the conversation of health and wellness concerning breast cancer survivors. Any cancer diagnosis is a journey. It's a journey that has no one straight line. But when we start with diagnosis, oftentimes we also start with people giving a lot of advice you can almost have information overload, feeling like you have to dive into knowing everything there is to know about your cancer and how to prepare yourself for solicited or unsolicited advice from everyone and anyone. And sometimes scary thoughts, such as, what did I do to get this diagnosis? Did I do something that caused me to have breast cancer? There are what we call in the healthcare system, modifiable risk factors. We've touched on them a little bit in some previous episodes because modifiable risk factors can equate to most cancer diagnosis, but it doesn't mean that you caused your cancer because of any one thing that you did. Is that something that you see in the dietitian world? Yes, absolutely. I see people get overwhelmed easily, especially right when you're diagnosed. You are being sent to numerous different doctors, but then you are getting info from friends and family sometimes, even in a loving, kind way, and the internet especially. And in regards to nutrition, people read things, hear things, and then come to me and say, I have no idea what I should or should not be eating right now, and I'm scared because they see that nutrition is one of the modifiable risk factors that you mentioned earlier, meaning that by having a proper nourishing diet versus a poor nourishing diet, it can improve your health and your risk for reoccurrence or your risk for cancer. So people really hold on to that and think that what they've done their whole life or eaten their whole life has caused this to develop in their bodies. And now they want to better themselves, but don't know how and really how to eat anymore and are scared. What are some of the myths that you hear? Let's start with one that I hear, that I can't have another donut because sugar causes cancer. That is, I think, probably the most stated myth that I hear almost on a daily basis. That one freaks a lot of people out because there is so much on the internet saying that if you eat sugar, it will cause your cancer to grow and spread and people really get scared to eat. 
I tell my patients, I try and break it down for them so they understand that is almost like a scare tactic and they're using verbiage very incorrectly. When we say sugar, people automatically think like cane sugar that we add into our coffee or use in baking. But sugar is also naturally found in fruits, vegetables, whole grains. They're really using the term sugar incorrectly. When you actually think about it, your body has your cancer cell and your good cell. And when you eat sugar, whether it be from a raspberry or a donut, it breaks down into the word glucose. For those of you that are diabetic, the term glucose may be familiar to you. That glucose, that sugar is entering the body and the cancer cell that's already there, already developed, there's already been DNA damage and everything. It goes and grabs what it needs and then goes back home. But your good healthy cell, the cell that's going to fight disease and help battle your cancer still needs sugar to survive and create new cells. The healthy cell is just a little bit slower. It's like a turtle and a rabbit. They both make it to the finish line, but one's quicker than the other. So if you really restrict your body of all sugar, including some from fruits and vegetables, that's not good for the health of all these fighter cells that we need in our system. And your body actually has like a backup generator almost where the liver can almost create this phenomenon of shooting out sugars for these cells to replicate and conquer this disease that's in your body. If you are having a donut, that donut is not going to cause your cancer to spread to other organs or grow. It's years of a diet that's paired only with processed things that may, not always may, cause inflammation and a whole cascade effect. When you think about it, remember all these good nourishing products have natural sugar in it. Sugar is not the enemy. It's the balance of what we're eating. I, as a dietitian, approve a donut for a patient when they're diagnosed. That's okay. If that's what tastes and sounds good to you right now, that's okay. I like to say that our body needs glucose for a whole bunch of processes. So if we don't have glucose in our body, any fuel that we feed it, whether it be a slab of meat, your body will find a way to make glucose to have the energy processes to do all the things it needs to do. So glucose and sugar is not the enemy. A whole well-balanced diet is best for the whole wide world. That's exactly what is needed for your body. A well-balanced diet can have a donut but you're also pairing it maybe with a nice lean protein like some nice Greek yogurt It's all about choosing the right options, pairing them together. One thing cannot be considered an enemy. We talk about many times throughout this podcast that obesity can be a problem. I have people that come to their new diagnosis saying, wow, at least now I get to lose weight. What do you hear when you're speaking to breast cancer patients? 
When I speak with my breast cancer patients after they found out they've been diagnosed and they think, okay, well, I'm about to go get treatment and chemo and I'm going to lose weight like crazy. It's totally fine. I have that extra 15 pounds I've been trying to lose for years, so I'm fine with it. Then we have to have that discussion of healthy weight loss and what that looks like. You're going to read and hear overweight, obesity, These things can put you at a higher risk for developing this or having reoccurrence. But it doesn't mean if you lose it during chemo, you're losing your fat. That's totally not how the body's going to work. I have to sit down with my patients and discuss what a healthy weight loss looks like. And actually, for those that may present with the BMI, which I do not find that great as a dietitian, nor do a lot of healthcare professionals, but yes, we still use it. If they are presenting on the higher spectrum, then it's actually indicated safely that my patients can lose weight about one to two pounds a week during active treatment. That's actually considered safe. Anything more than that is when you start to lose more muscle mass, You start to lose skeletal muscle. You've heard us use the term before, sarcopenia. There's a lot of factors that can be happening that you're unaware of if you let your body lose weight drastically during treatment. You may hear from providers, your goal is to maintain your weight during treatment. Even if you feel that you have been wanting to lose 30 pounds for five years, right now is not the time. Put that on the back burner. Let's focus on healthy eating habits and giving your body what it's requiring of you. And then from creating those healthy eating habits, we can then transition to a healthy weight loss. That's very interesting to hear because that is exactly what I say. Your goal is not to lose weight. Your goal is to maintain your weight during treatment. But one of the reasons I say that is because we have this phenomenon in breast cancer treatment that quite a few of our patients gain weight. Yes, I see that shock many, many a patients. That's a good word to use as phenomenon, yes. We have people coming to treatment thinking, well, at least I get to lose a little weight, which we try to say, "Mm, not going to happen. (laughs) or I don't want it to happen because I worry about the people who lose their weight, that they aren't doing as well at home, that they're not feeling well enough, that maybe they're dealing with too much nausea or maybe some diarrhea or things that are troubling them. Because I see that it is more common for breast cancer treatment patients to gain weight during treatment. That's a really good point. Can you maybe explain to everyone listening how that's happening and what's happening to their bodies to have that effect? One of the reasons is the nature of what they receive for their systemic treatment or IV chemotherapy that is so common to breast cancer. We know that the history of traditional chemotherapies that they receive causes quite a bit of nausea. Patients used to go home and vomit that same night and have awful nausea. We have come a long way with the treatments that we can use in order to prevent vomiting. 
when we're doing that, sometimes we are still tickling the stomach in a way that you still feel something going on. And what is that feeling? I'm not wanting to vomit, but maybe I'm feeling like if I just ate a little bit of something else, I could settle my stomach down. Or maybe the steroids that are used in order to augment or help the nausea medicine work better are causing you actually to feel hunger that's ravenous. And so I'm going to eat more. My goal is to make people aware of the weight gain that typically happens during systemic or IV chemotherapy in order for them to then maybe control their eating just a little bit so they don't gain as much weight. I'm guilty of taking the tactic of eat what feels good, but don't gain weight. (laughs) And I would also couple with that too. Their weight gain may also be attributed to just generalized fatigue, decreased physical activity, changes in hormones, changes in what we call like metabolic rate, which is just a fancy word for like how many calories your body needs in a day just to function. Sometimes we see that slow down, maybe into a protective mode. And so you need less calories, but now you're on steroids, so you're eating more. Exactly. And then we see that weight effect. So a lot of people just are so confused. And I think some articles reported like the average is about 3 to 12 pounds of weight gain they've seen, but I've seen none and I've seen a lot more. It's all about recognizing what can happen, having that conversation with the patient and really helping the patient create like a healthy relationship with their food and also giving them permission and not also binge eating too out of any fear or restrictions too. So there's a lot of variables. So utilize your healthcare team. Reach out to the dietitian if you start to notice that you're gaining weight. Excellent. People who have been listening for a while on this podcast know that we always couple our thoughts on nutrition with activity. Movement is so important. So important. Movement is key, not only just for general activity, but for so many of the side effects from the medications and therapies that you're receiving. The most frequent reported side effect during treatment, 60 to 90% of patients reported is fatigue. You're tired, you're exhausted, you don't want to move. Getting your body up and doing some sort of light physical activity is going to actually reduce your fatigue, which can seem counterintuitive, but it actually helps. And it helps with many other things. We talk about in this podcast about feeding the good cells and getting the bad cells out through the waste. So you need movement to circulate and feed the good cells and movement to pee out those bad guys. Absolutely. We can't just go home and always be resting. You do have to set some limits and boundaries. And one tool that can help with that, actually, a lot of my patients, breast cancer or other cancers, we utilize physical therapy even during treatment, but especially after treatment to help with that movement. It can be like an accountability factor. You're getting up, you're going somewhere, you have stretching exercises to do They can take an account to any kind of physical ailments that could be part of this treatment. You have so many options. There's even like a lot of centers where I work with a lot of dietitians across the country and there's a lot of centers that also have exercise classes like Tai Chi and stuff 
doing those types of light, you know, movements and mind body connection actually helped reduce a lot of pain and fatigue during treatment and promotes healing. Exactly. So reach out, see what's available in your area. Some wellness centers offer cancer specific classes too, which, you know, can be a little bit more comforting to you if you feel out of place going to the gym to a kickboxing class. Or doing things at home. There's video options. There's things to do from a chair. Many of the women I work with love their chair yoga exercises, especially a lot of people got more comfortable during COVID looking up stuff online. But, you know, make sure you get one that fits you where you're at. Don't push yourself too hard. Just move, stretch, move that body. But you can totally do it in the comfort of your own home. Physical activity actually is safe to do during treatment. It just may need to be modified. Some patients I work with, they really love exercise and they're very dedicated to it. They train for marathons and things like that. They go to the gym, you know, four to five times a week, which I love, right? But we have that discussion that, okay, in the beginning of treatment, you may still be able to do that, but we may have to cut back a little bit during treatment to allow more rest time, right? The cellular recovery time. The body needs repair time, and that's what fatigue is. So you do have to balance some activity with adequate periods of rest for restoring your fighters. Exactly. Movement keeps our body's lean body mass, which is your muscle, your good thing, the stuff that we want more of. And that retains it better in the body if you actually continue to move and do some physical activity throughout treatment. And people have reduced side effects because of that. There's better outcomes from treatment because that muscle mass is one of the most vital things to keeping your body in a tip-top healthy shape, right? So while you move during treatment, you're keeping it strong and not letting those muscles wither away which can worsen you into a fatigue vicious cycle. You're going to hear that word balance, but it's true for a reason. And listening to your body. Yes. But not giving in to the Netflix couch. Exactly. You mentioned lean body mass. I also want to point out that the most worrisome modifiable risk factor is a central obesity. Is that related to nutrition and wellness? Yes, that is correct. You may see like when you're reading something, centralized adiposity, right? Big fancy terms. It just means that you carry more fat in your abdomen area. So some people's bodies carry it in different places, but that centralized, that stomach area, if we have more fat there, the fat cells are creating more hormones and things that then can kind of lead to higher risk of developing disease or reoccurrence as well. When it comes to breast cancer, because of the hormones, your weight status is going to be a big thing that you may hear your doctors address with you. Right. With any cancer involving the sex organs, whether it be breast or prostate, ovarian, or others, hormones are affected both by the disease and by the treatment. In particular, with breast cancer, we talk a lot about estrogen. 
Yes, that is one of the most common terms heard thrown around or see when you're reading. Estrogen, I think, is the buzzword for breast cancer. There is a theory that estrogen can be affected by food, particularly soy products, and many of my patients become afraid of soy. Yes, I can't tell you how many times that we've had the soy discussion with patients. I just want to break this down so everyone feels comfortable knowing that they can safely consume soy. When you look at soy, if you're reading something, you may see it has phytoestrogens in it, right? And you're like, oh my gosh, the word estrogen, this is terrible. I shouldn't be eating this food. Phytoestrogens, phyto means plant. So it means it's a plant estrogen, right? It's not bodily. It's not prescription. So it's just estrogen found in our plant foods in very healthy, delicious plant foods that are very popular. Plant estrogen, think of as like a little tiny grain of rice. And the estrogen that's found in your body is like an elephant. So how effective or how powerful a plant estrogen is compared to bodily estrogen is completely different. They're made up differently and so they're going to work differently. Phytoestrogens or plant estrogens are going to be found in foods such as beans, seeds, and grains. And those are all foods that are part of and recommended as a very healthy diet for people during treatment and survivorship. These are also going to be found in our soy products. When I talk about soy, you're going to think of things like miso, tempeh, tofu, soy milk, edamame, the plant soy burger that you just maybe had at a restaurant plant-based dairy products, and those are going to include soy. And those are whole food soy, meaning they came from the soy plant, right, and have been formed into a food product for us to eat, but they have not been broken down and crushed into powders and processed extremely and added into other things as an ingredient. There's also soy called a soy isoflavone. Think of that term as basically soy processed like crazy, a man-made almost type product that is thrown into things as bulking agents or for protein or other reasons to not be given as a natural food. For example, a lot of protein bars and some powders that you think are healthy are going to have soy isoflavones in them. I tell my breast cancer patients that it's best to try and avoid the more processed soy Actually, research is showing us that if you consume whole food soy products, a serving of it one to two times a week, it's very safe. And actually, they're starting to see some data come out where it can be beneficial in preventing reoccurrence as well. So soy foods are not necessarily the enemy. I recommend my patients edamame all the time because it has great protein in it. It's very healthy and good for them you can safely include it in your diet. We just want to look at how much we're doing and where else can we get protein from to balance it all out. We can choose some other plant-based proteins to replace so you're still getting that beautiful protein source that's important. But if you're not eating any, you can safely add these to your diet. 
Soy milk has just as much protein as a cow's milk, so it's a great alternative. Adding edamame. You can buy it already shelled frozen, which is my favorite. Steam it easy in the microwave a couple minutes, and then I keep it cold in my fridge, toss it in salads, roast it, throw it in stir fries, add it with any chicken or fish dish. It has a great texture and is just a great way to add some beneficial protein to your diet which is obviously one of the most important foods that we want to be focused on for any patient with cancer undergoing treatment. Also with breast cancer and estrogen changes, we also have to have discussions about bone health and hot flashes. Yeah, bone health is a huge consideration for our breast cancer patients. Sometimes I feel like that gets lost in the nutrition discussions that a lot of patients have. For adequate bone health, sometimes you may find that if your doctor puts you on a certain treatment regimen, you may be prescribed a calcium and vitamin D supplementation, both men and women. So those are things I think we need to address with our breast cancer patients and then talk about the proper way to take your supplements. Are there dietary food sources that you've helped them focus on? That's a good question. Sometimes dietary food sources just won't be enough, especially if they're in active treatment on certain maybe chemo regimens that's making them nauseous, they don't want to eat. That's the conundrum there is people want to get it through their food and food first, but maybe you're just not able to at that time, and that's okay. To rely on a supplement, you're adding to your diet. You're using it to help get you to nourish your body adequately. So yes, there are some in foods, but not always do those foods seem appealing to someone that has mouth sores, taste changes, nausea. In that regard, if you were to focus on food for calcium and vitamin D, what is the most common thing you think of, Sarah, when you think of calcium and vitamin D? You think milk. Yep, drink your milk, right? Most milk products nowadays sold in your stores, unless you're going directly to the animal source, is fortified, meaning they added calcium and vitamin D. That's obviously an optimal source. So sources are going to be things that are fortified, even ready-to-go cereals. Hot cereals have fortified aspects. Vitamin D naturally is going to be very difficult to find in food. Some mushrooms will contain it. There's even some mushrooms now they put under certain UV lights that increase the vitamin D content. Your salmon, but that's limited. Not an abundant amount of foods are going to be giving you vitamin D. Where Sarah and I are located, we live in the Midwest and we're not getting a lot of sunshine all the time. So a lot of people are already low on vitamin D. And then if we're adding in having breast cancer and undergoing treatment, it's really going to make it rough. So a supplement is going to be a really good tool, but we can also work on other dietary sources with your dietitian that are going to be something you can tolerate at that time. There is a lot of confusion and concern about when to take your supplements or how to take your supplements. That's actually one of the things I always address in my nutrition assessment is I ask, A, what vitamins, minerals, herbal supplements are we taking? When do you take it? How do you take it? On an empty stomach, with food, around coffee, there's a lot of variables. 
if you're going to spend the money on a quality supplement or get that prescription and go through the action of taking another pill in your regimen, you want that pill to benefit your body. And sometimes most of us don't take it properly. So when I say that, I mean vitamin D is something that we call fat soluble. So it means it needs a little bit of fat in that belly for it to be absorbed. If you take it on an empty stomach, you're actually not absorbing as much of it either. So you want to take it with that meal and then it gets stored in the body and it builds up in the body over time. So you want vitamin D taken with food. So for me, if I know sometimes I'm not always great at eating breakfast all the time because we're all imperfect, I always take mine specifically after dinner because it's easiest for me. Another thing is the reason you often see calcium and D put together on the label is because they're kind of like best friends when they go and enter the body. Both of them can be absorbed better. And it can be really challenging to know when to take it. I'll sit down with my patients and say, okay, you're on iron. Well, iron can mess with your calcium. So we want to separate your iron here, take your calcium and vitamin D at this time, and you're going to absorb the most possible. Now, if you're currently taking your vitamin D on an empty stomach, it doesn't mean you're not getting anything out of it. But if you can make a change in the time or how or when you're taking it, that's going to be even better for you. You are so full of knowledge. Calcium and vitamin D are helpful for the bone. And of course, exercise helps maintain your bone as well because of the muscle action against the bone optimizes your bone strength. I know that you would be very specific with which supplements and what their needs are with each individual patient. Do you have any other thoughts on supplements that we need to know about? For instance, I take my supplements that should be taken on an empty stomach right before bed, and I take with food at breakfast time because I know I always eat breakfast. I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm actually the complete opposite, and that's okay because we're all different. I know that I'm going to be consistent with taking my fat-soluble or ones that need a meal when I take mine at night, whereas you personally know yourself and you know, okay, I'm going to be consistent with food in the morning. So that's when I focus my fat soluble ones at that time of day. Really, the supplement thing, many people have supplements, go look in your cupboard, I'm sure you have a variety of options lingering around there, probably some maybe even outdated expired. But do we take them consistently and regularly? Most of the time, the answer is no. And during this time when someone gets diagnosed, supplements can be a big topic and a lot of recommendations flood in from family and friends. So people start to take them more consistently. But the key with supplements is consistency. You can't build up a benefit from them if you just take them sporadically Yes, that's great. You're giving yourself that little extra nudge, but you want to be consistent. Some people like to know, okay, so for example, vitamin D is naturally from the sun and during the daytime is when we receive the sun. Is my body going to accept a supplemental form of vitamin D if I take that at night? 
The answer is yes. Would it be optimal to take it during the day to keep your body in that natural kind of circadian rhythm, the cellular digestion, breakdown, absorption? You may see a little bit more benefit, but it's worth it in the long run if taking it at night is going to be more consistent and key for you to utilize that supplement. As a dietitian, my consistency is more at night with my supplements, but not everyone is the same. So the key is consistency and whatever works for you. If a supplement is causing a side effect such as gas or stomach pains, changing the time of day or changing what is eaten or not eating around it could make a difference just like other medications. So talking to your provider might help you gain some more insight. Yes, absolutely. And also looking at the quality and form of supplement. For example, your local dollar stores may be selling multivitamins. Are they going to be as good as some other brands? Probably not. Let's remember, guys, the supplement business in America, it's not super regulated. So a lot of stuff can be sold and put in these capsules and things. So you really want to work with a healthcare provider to get a good brand recommendation and some good ideas going forward. Also, there's different types. The capsules and the products in it to create a pill or capsule form, you may want to change up and maybe go a vegan route, a gluten-free capsule. There's a lot of things that can be added to these. So making sure you're looking at what's in your supplement besides the actual vitamin or mineral. You can also look into liquid forms. So for example, personally, I take a liquid vitamin D supplement. It's easier, but it's also absorbed better. There's options out there, overwhelming options. So make sure your healthcare provider helps find what's best for you and the easiest for you to be consistent with that. If we're really getting down to the nitty gritty of absorption, one key fact too is I never encourage people taking their supplements with their morning coffee or tea because that actually can reduce how well you absorb it. So that's just another tweak. You can improve the absorption and benefit from that supplement you're taking. They just naturally have these things in it called tannins and there's other properties that are found in tea and coffee. Not that it's not good and has healthy nutrients, but can just counteract your absorption process. There's many ways to look at when and how to take your supplement to get the most bang for your buck, essentially. Another key fact is if you're on something like a PPI. Proton pump inhibitor. Yes, thank you, Sarah. Nexium, Prilosec. Or something like that where it's reducing the acid content of your gut. That's also going to mess with the absorption components. So I will look at med lists and look to see is the acidity slightly off in your gut and when is the best time to take something like your vitamin C or vitamin D or something like that. There's a lot of factors, but general rule of thumb to just not get overwhelmed. First, start with finding a time of day where you will be consistent and then build up goals from there. This is a really complex issue. 
that definitely is complex and it deserves a whole episode in itself. If you've ever walked into a supplement store, it's scary and overwhelming. So stay tuned, everyone, so Sarah and I can kind of break down what to look for, what to take, how to take it, and get more precise information and education for you. This feels like a good stopping point. Stay tuned for part two of this conversation. Thank you for joining us, and thank you, Gina Rich, for joining us as well. Take care and spread kindness.